Welcome to FRT, the IF's podcast at the intersection of finance, regulation, and technology. I'm Jessica Renier, Managing Director of the Digital Finance Team here at the IF. I'm here today with Tom Mutton, Director of FinTech at the Bank of England. We're very excited to have him. Tom, welcome. Thank you, Jess, and thank you to the IIF. Uh, great to have the opportunity to speak to you. So let's start today just quickly by giving just a bit of background about the bank's fintech office and how it's evolved over the past five or so years. Fintech is um, one of the bank's strategic priorities. It's something we take very seriously. It's something we see significant opportunities in, and we very much want to enable safe innovation in fintech. Uh, I've been uh, doing this job since we set it up, so it's been sort of four or five years now. And it's very much about uh, scanning the horizon for innovations which could improve the effectiveness of finance, think about the opportunities that that may present for the resilience, stability and efficiency of the financial sector, and then to also think about the implications uh, for the core central banking mandate. So monetary stability, financial stability, uh, the safety and soundness of prudential regulation authority firms. We've delivered a couple of kind of big pieces of work in that. The Future Finance Report, which was um, led by uh, Hugh Van Steenis uh, and supported by the fintech team here. Also our surveys on artificial intelligence, which I know has been covered in a previous edition of this podcast. Uh, and currently much of our work on cryptocurrency uh, and of course on central bank digital currency. So on central bank digital currency, let's let's focus there. So in 2021, you had mentioned or stated that the bank would explore the case for CBDC with pace and purpose, but also with an open mind on whether one is needed. Recently in February, bank has then published a joint consultative paper with HM Treasury titled The Digital Pound, A New Form of Money for Households and Businesses? Question mark. And of course, this paper was a very long-awaited report, and we were very glad to see it come out. A number of jurisdictions had taken similar consultative-type actions uh, last year, and we've been really looking forward to to this particular paper. With the time that you had to kind of thoughtfully craft what is in the paper, perhaps um, you could share with us just some of your core thinking around that and how the bank approached this particular report. So one of the key things to mention about this report is uh, we very deliberately did it together, jointly through a task force with our finance ministry. And that's because many of the issues related to central bank digital currency go some way beyond the core central banking mandate. Therefore, it's really important that we did this hand in hand, completely jointly with our finance ministry. And therefore, it was a joint publication. Within this, we've reached a conclusion that we think that a digital pound is likely needed. And that uh, reflects the fact that we think there's a potentially strong public policy case, but we didn't have sufficient evidence to decide that we should proceed to build one right now. Uh, And we decided to embark on a design phase, which will last around two years, uh, which will explore the case in more detail and then result in a decision around the middle of the decade on whether we proceed to build or not. Uh, and that reflects the fact that although we think this is a strong public policy case, we have to assess a number of things, including whether this is operationally feasible, whether it's viable from a technology perspective, and whether there's a commercial case there for the private sector who will be key players in this to provide digital pound services. Uh, and all of that will come together in a decision around the middle of the decade on whether or not we proceed to build. If we do proceed to build, we imagine that the earliest point at which a digital pound might be available 
for people to use in the UK uh, would be around the end of the decade. So that's the sort of the timeline uh, and the, uh, the approach we've taken so far. So you start with, it's likely that a digital pound is needed. So can you expand on that a little bit more? What, what would be the, the merits of pursuing a digital pound in terms, of, in terms of economic growth or in terms of liquidity or access? Or I know that there are any number of jurisdictions that we have spoken to that certainly seem to be pursuing research and possible development around a central bank digital currency, primarily it seems for optionality purposes at this time, and we'll decide later. How are you thinking about all of those things? So for us, the objectives of a digital pound are things we think we're pretty clear on, and that's what we put out in the consultation paper. Really, there's two principal ones. Uh, We think in a more digital world, it's very important that people have the option to use a digital form of century, central bank provided money. So at the moment, sort of 85, 90% of the money that we use for payments, um, electronic payments, is provided by private sector participants in the form of commercial bank deposits. And we think that that's uh, extremely useful. It's, um, you know, it's performing very well for people in the UK. But it is important as we move into a more digital world, as the possible use of cash declines, Uh, Although we're committed to continue to provide cash as long as people wish to use it, but we are seeing a trajectory of declining use of cash for transactional purposes, that people have the option to use a central bank provided form of money. And that's for uh, two principal reasons. First of all, we think it provides an anchor to our monetary system. It's a universal, risk-free, widely understood asset which could be available to people in digital form. And that helps to tie together all the different forms of money which exist in our economy and could, we think, help to uh, support an open uh, and interoperable monetary system and underpin confidence uh, in private money in the form of commercial bank deposits, but also electronic money uh, and potentially in the future a a regulated payment stablecoin, although one doesn't exist at the moment. Uh, And we think that anchoring role, the tying all the different forms of money together through a universal risk-free asset that everybody can access uh, is particularly important. Secondly, we saw a case uh, for innovation. We think this can be open infrastructure available for innovators to use. Those could be innovators from uh, the financial sector. They might be innovators from the non-financial sector who choose to provide uh, digital pound services. And that's because this would work through a so-called platform model where the central bank would provide the item of money, the digital pound, we would provide the core ledger and we would safeguard the assets. The private sector would then provide digital wallets, which would uh, offer uh, identity, know your clients, money laundering, checks, but also value-add services. And I think in a world of embedded finance, it might be that different sorts of wallet providers want to embed these into, uh, into novel services like social media or entertainment or e-commerce. Uh, and we saw that as a pretty effective way to reduce the barriers to entry, to make sure that people's money would be safeguarded because it would be with the central bank, to ensure we could have proportionality in regulation because innovators would have to be well governed, they'd have to treat their customers fairly, but ultimately the safeguarding would happen at the central bank. And also to reduce some of the infrastructure barriers because the central bank would build much of the infrastructure and innovators could therefore focus on the wallets which would plug in. So we saw those two cases the monetary anchor and then the innovation case. 
we saw some other important reasons uh, to potentially provide a digital pound. Uh, financial inclusion is the most obvious one. And I think perhaps here we saw that as something which was very important to consider, uh, something very important to make sure that we, uh, in designing a digital pound, optimise the opportunities for financial inclusion. But we didn't see it as a first order reason that a digital pound uh, would need to exist. We have a variety of other uh, solutions to try and improve financial inclusion in the UK, uh, including the provision of basic bank account services, which are essentially credit-free uh, banking services. So financial inclusion is important, but it wasn't a first order consideration. That perhaps is slightly different to some other uh, countries uh, who may have financial inclusion higher in their list of priorities for a, a central bank digital currency perhaps reflecting a higher level of unbanked uh, citizens. So you name a number of opportunities and ways in which a digital currency might be used in the economy and be beneficial from the risk standpoint. I know there is certainly a conversation around or thoughtfulness around monetary flows being a focus in terms of stability of the banking system. Um, when uh, considering a central bank digital currency and potential for increasing the run risk on banks. And I think some of these questions actually came up more after a couple of more recent bank failures and, and kind of even the academic thought in terms of would would they have maybe played out any different um, in, if a CBDC were to exist versus not to exist? I'd love to just understand your thinking about the risk side and how that might be managed. So the main role of or one of the main roles of a central bank is to promote financial stability and we're never going to take any action which is going to threaten financial stability. What I would say on this is first of all having access to risk-free central bank money in a way which is useful to people's lives in this case digital uh, we think is is very much the foundation of financial stability uh, and that's precisely because of this point that central bank money is the anchor for, for monetary and financial stability so we think there's an important ca positive case uh, for financial stability related to the digital pound we also recognize that this is a a new form of money it's something where we don't know what people's behavioral response will be uh, we've done a bunch of modeling as you would expect and the uk financial sector has also done some of their own modeling the thing that is unknown about this is what people's behavioral response will be to it we don't know what level of demand there will be we don't know how people might might choose to use it so we think that whilst it's important we provide this for a financial stability purpose, we also recognise was the possibility of an abrupt adjustment if there is unexpectedly high levels of demand. So to tread carefully, we have decided to impose a limit on individuals' holdings of a digital pound. Uh, we think that something in the region of ten to £20,000 sterling uh, will allow the majority of, of people in the UK to receive their salary in this, uh, and therefore, it would make the digital pound useful for them, but at the same time, it wouldn't substantially disintermediate the banking sector. So those uh, limits, uh, were we to proceed, we would expect to apply for at least the early days of the digital pound. And we think that that's you know, a very important consideration. But we also recognise that um, if new forms of digital money emerge, which is a, is a real possibility, then this source of banking sector disintermediation could happen uh, and deposit disintermediation could happen from both the central bank digital currency 
but equally could happen from a fully reserved backed stablecoin, for example. And therefore, it's important to look at this broadly because there are a variety of potential sources of banking sector disintermediation. Uh, the final thing I'd say on this is, from a monetary policy perspective, our motivation here is not to broaden the monetary policy toolkit. So we've decided that digital pound would be unremunerated. Uh, that means it wouldn't pay positive nor negative interest rates uh, on, on the digital pound. We also noted, of course, the accompanying technology working paper that outlines the Bank of England's emerging thinking around the CBDC technology specifically. I'm getting uh, just a, a little bit more into the weeds and sets out like, an illustrative conceptual model with paper states that um, is based on the platform model of CBDC and outlines how different components of the conceptual model uh, might operate and how ecosystem participants might interact with these various components. How would you characterize items that you dug into further into that report that you're looking for reaction to versus the first joint consultative report? It's a great question. So there's a the reason that one's a consultation paper uh, and one is a, um, a working paper and it, it reflects our degree of uh, confidence in a way in, in the conclusions. So uh, a consultation paper is something that you really need to be very confident, reflects your your conviction, what you want to do. And in that case, the central bank digital currency consultation paper said, here's some reasons that we think this is likely needed. What do you think? And as I said, no decision has been taken whether or not to launch it or build it. But it says we've reached a position of some conviction here that this is the public policy case we think uh, a digital pound should fulfill and we think it's likely needed. In the case of the technology working paper, the reason it's a working paper is it's more open. So we engaged widely with technologists uh, from both the financial sector, from, from the tech community, from academics. And actually what we heard was an extremely wide range of views. I chaired our uh, our technology forum, which is continuing, and we had incredibly rich conversations, probably didn't have a whole heap of consensus in that discussion. So what we thought, uh, kind of reflecting on that, was let's try and move the discussion forward by thinking about what we've heard, or the evidence we've received from technologists, and that we'll put something out there which says, we think this is our preferred model, and we think this is the technology implications which flow for it. What uh, we're really keen to emphasize, though, is that that is conceptual, it's hypothetical. We haven't decided that that's our final infrastructure, but we think an architecture. But we think that's our sort of central case at the moment, and we wanted people to react to it. And it's the sort of paper that we've put out there and we've said, OK, shoot us down, like, tell us this is wrong. And we're hoping that's going to generate a really sort of actionable set of feedback. But what it doesn't reflect is the digital pound we would build if we were going to launch it. There's there's a whole heap of work to do over the next two or so years uh, to get to a point where we have a blueprint, which does reflect something we would want to build if we went ahead. So it was really intended as something which could help focus people's minds around a proposition and they could give us feedback on something something concrete, something tangible. And you know, I think the response we've had so far has been really encouraging. Something that you've highlighted before is the need for an identity system to interact with the digital pound to support enforcing holding limits and, and 
government transfers, but one that would not identify individuals to the government specifically. Can you talk about some of the conversations that go into this design or technical approach to, to do something like that? And which entity do you see perhaps managing this effort or perhaps that's too far down the road? Yeah, so the first thing, I'll just say a word uh, on privacy first, which is uh, privacy is absolutely essential because um, there needs to be trust and confidence uh, in, in the digital pound system. All money is built on trust and confidence. If people's privacy isn't protected, uh, then they won't use it and therefore it won't meet its goals. So this only works if there is trust and confidence and trust and confidence means people's privacy being uh, respected and protected. We've decided the digital pound system will be private but not anonymous. That means there will be KYC, there will be identity verification, but that will be subject to rigorous privacy protections, which are at least as strict as current forms of electronic payments. So payments with debit cards, payments with credit cards, um, and commercial bank deposits. There will be absolutely no personal data shared with the bank or held with, at the bank. Uh, it will be a pseudonymous system. That means that the wallet providers from the private sector would undertake identity verification. But the ledger, to which, uh, which is held at the central bank, which holds the digital pounds, and will execute the payments, will not receive anybody's personally identifiable information. It will be pseudonymous, so random letters and numbers. Importantly, we might consider the role for privacy enhancing technology, and that's something we covered in the tech working paper. And we have no incentive to monetize people's personal data, at least at the level of the central bank. So again, that's the thing which should help preserve privacy. And finally, we are committed to preserve access to cash for as long as people wish to use it. So the opportunity to pay in cash uh, is always there. So private but not anonymous, but privacy is, is an absolutely fundamental feature of the digital pound design. In terms of digital identity, one of the things we said is um, it's not for the central bank to decide whether or not we have digital identity in the financial sector, but we think it's extremely useful. We think it's got great opportunities, but critically, it needs to be a private sector provided and voluntary digital identity. But we think it offers a lot of benefits in terms of helping people identify themselves from a financial inclusion perspective, reducing the costs of KYC and anti-money laundering. But nobody would be compelled to use a digital identity and digital pound system. Therefore, it would have to work for people who also decided not to have a digital identity. So let's talk interoperability just for a moment. We hear international standard setters increasingly talking about interaction between different CBDCs and the concerns around moving from one system to another, or just from a, you know interactions between central bank standpoint. What sort of international efforts do you think are needed to support the interoperability of future systems should they come to fruition? So interoperability is is essential to making a central bank digital currency system work. Domestically, you need interoperability with other forms of money, which means the ability to move in and out of a central bank digital currency into commercial bank deposits, into electronic money, and potentially, were one to emerge, a regulated payment stablecoin. And the ability to do that is fundamental to the monetary anchor, to the uniformity of money. So this really only works if we deliver interoperability between the forms of money. It's also important that we have interoperability between the digital wallet providers 
particularly if you want to have offline transactions, likely those will be device-to-device -device transactions, either person-to-person -person or person-to-business. And that's really important with interoperability there because if they're offline, if they're not being executed immediately across the central bank ledger, then devices, wallets need to be able to talk to each other. And that is, uh, that's a really meaningful and uh, you know, quite extensive piece of work that would have to be done. Then at the international level, it's important that we consider whether we could connect and link central bank digital currencies across borders. In order to do that, though, they have to be working domestically. In this space, uh, the G20, the Committee for Payments and Market Infrastructures, is leading this work uh, together with the Financial Stability Board. And they have a, a whole bunch of building blocks that they're exploring. And uh, one of them, I think, is building block 19 of the Cross-Border Payments Roadmap is looking precisely at the opportunities, but also the practical considerations uh, of linking central bank digital currencies uh, across borders. Of course, that work is uh, conceptual at the moment because there are sort of no scaled central bank digital currencies right now, but it's an important consideration for the future because we don't want to build a fragmented system where central bank digital currencies, if they emerge, are not interoperable with each other. So one uh, vision of the future that uh, came about in February includes Augustine Carson's speech that he made from uh, uh, the Monetary Authority of Singapore, um, laying out kind of a, a vision of a future financial system that has really the center of it is technologically superior forms of, of existing money explicitly, really taking wholesale CBDCs, complementing them with deposit tokens, um, and potentially, you know, retail CBDCs in whatever jurisdictions do decide to pursue them, and then also tokenized assets on a unified programmable ledger. So ideally, something that is interoperable. In terms of the the tokenized assets piece, and then the question about just other other assets or other forms of money right now, are there forms of money or various developments in in the crypto sphere that you think are or not essential to be um, interoperable with such a system? Do we really need to capture everything all together, or be a little bit more selective, perhaps um, in in more in the flavor of Carson's speech, kind of laying out certain items to be captured, perhaps on a unified programmable ledger. So, I mean, it's been it's been hugely thought provoking the general manager's uh, uh, speech, and I was uh, fortunate to speak at the digital currency roundtable that the IIF held uh, last week in DC, and it, it was something that people were were, were really interested in. Um, and clearly there's a lot more debate and consideration to have about the merits uh, of such ideas. And I should also note that whilst uh, some of the uh, sort of unified public ledgers, uh, imagine these are sort of public sector provided ledgers, whether central bank or somebody else, uh, there's also private sector thinking about sort of similar ideas around unified ledgers uh, provided by the private sector. So this is a, a pretty fast-moving space and something where we're seeing a lot of innovation, a lot of dynamic thinking, um, and it's really important that uh, as a central bank we're engaging with it. The first thing we need to think about is, I mean, to me it seems that it's, it's not a radical statement to say if much of finance was on a shared ledger we'd remove some frictions. I mean, I think that's that's probably likely to be true. We should also just reflect on the reasons why that may not have happened so far and also why it may have some drawbacks as well. Think about things like single points of failure uh, and other things. So we just need to make sure uh, we look at this in the round. Uh, secondly, interoperability 
uh, is always a good thing and it's really fundamental to making sure that our monetary uh, and financial system doesn't fragment, uh, which, which would be a bad outcome. Uh, on tokenization, I think it's something which there is huge interest in, there could be a big opportunity there. At the same time, we need to be clear about what are the goals of tokenization? Can they be achieved through other means? Uh, but it's something which uh, you know we're very keen to hear more about and see some some big opportunities there. Uh, and indeed, Andrew Bailey in his speech uh, again last week at, at DC and also at the IIF um, uh, did point out that um, you know we're interested in digital pound, we're interested in central bank digital currency, but this is something where the the commercial banking sector, financial institutions they may also you know, have their own responses to this, including things like tokenized deposits. Uh, and we should think very carefully about the implications of that. And then what are we learning from the crypto sphere? So one thing that's really important is we think about innovation, which comes from the crypto distributed ledger uh, type of world, and think about how that could actually uh, improve money and payments and financial services more broadly. I think programmability is a really interesting one. Uh, it's a huge innovation uh, which could have really profound effects um, and be very beneficial. We've been clear with the digital pound that we think programmability designed and initiated by the user via their digital wallet provided by the private sector could be really helpful. But we in the central bank will design our system such that we could never initiate any pri uh, public sector uh, initiated programmability so we can execute programmability but not initiate it ourselves uh, and that should hopefully uh, give people some reassurance that we will not be imposing conditionality or programs uh, on a digital pound for one to exist but programmability is a really big thing to learn from uh, i think from the crypto sphere uh, the second thing is to just think about some of the resilience benefits which might might come from uh, from this world. So there is unquestionably a material issue in the crypto and DeFi world around fraud, around scams, and around poor outcomes for consumers and investor protection. That will never be allowed to happen in a digital pound system if we get there. But at the same time, you should also think about the innovation and resilience benefits of some of these forms of distributed systems. We haven't reached a view on what our architecture will be, but we're very open to learn lessons from the emerging crypto and DeFi world. There certainly is a lot going on in that world and, and in the private sector, as you rightfully emphasize here and, and point out, I, I know that there are a lot of efforts, development and discussion, I think of late, around public infrastructure and public forms of improving access to the financial system and payment forms and, and other things. And, and I do think that amongst a lot of those discussions that perhaps some of, some of the discussion has been forgotten about the merit and the, the value that the privately led systems that are always under creation and always under um, kind of development and innovation bring um, and always have bring and always have brought and, and continue to bring. And I do think a, a lot of the discussion really has focused on the public side. So it's it's great uh, to also hear you emphasize that there are other private systems that we, we should also think about at the same time. Getting to DeFi, perhaps closing out, I note that U.S. bank regulators on, on the one hand have stated that public ledgers would, and, and DeFi in particular, would be 
they'd consider it highly unlikely to be consistent with safe and sound banking practices. There was a, a statement a bit ago from the joint um, U.S. bank regulators, and whether it is DeFi that, you know, as we see entities pursue activity around decentralized finance, um, it's not always the same kind of activity. So oftentimes when people say decentralized finance, they're just implying a process or um, a system that is more decentralized than, than the process that is currently being employed today, but it's not necessarily fully decentralized or implies a fully public ledger. I wonder if you might share with us just any thoughts about the future of of DeFi, if there is a future that you see for DeFi or the or the future of public ledgers or how we may or may not be able to interact with them? It's a really profound question. I would strongly recommend the um, Financial Stability Board report uh, on decentralized finance, um, uh, which was published a couple of months ago and delivered to the G20. A couple of things which emerged from that report, uh, the first one was it wasn't judged to be a, a sort of uh, a present threat to global financial stability. So not something on which um, it was deemed that there was a, a sort of, you know, an urgent threat to, to global financial stability. But it was an area where it was judged that there was there was a lot of innovation uh, and that the market uh, had the potential to grow quite quickly. Uh, and that also it was supporting some, some significant innovation. I think secondly, that report also uh, emphasised, and I know that some uh, US authorities have said this as well, that... The system is perhaps not as decentralized as it would like to make out because uh, even if the technology is decentralized, some of the decision makers, the governance, the intermediaries, the on and off ramps uh, are far from decentralized. So just being on a distributed ledger, just being on a, a public blockchain uh, doesn't make you decentralized finance. Um, and you have to look at the wider set of perspectives around governance, decision makers, intermediaries, etc. I kind of look at this a bit personally in, in two ways. I, I don't really see a future in which we don't have intermediaries. Um, they perform some really important uh, roles. And the kind of so-called trustless sort of future of finance, people interacting on a peer-to-peer -peer basis, maybe the premise is sort of code is law and you know trust machines to validate transactions rather than, uh, rather than institutions uh, or intermediaries. Maybe some of that will emerge, but I'm not sure I see it as a, a kind of mainstream proposition. Therefore, you know, I think it's to underestimate the role that intermediaries play and to overestimate the degree of decentralization in these systems. At the same time, I think we should recognize that there are some real opportunities here and there are some different ways of doing finance. And, uh, you know, I think the key thing here is to is to take the best from this sort of approach and say, are the different ways of doing things? Could different sorts of consensus mechanisms, different ways of validating transactions offer some resilience benefits? And, you know, I think things like avoiding single points of failure and having different ways of validating transactions could, could be important. So I can well understand why, why that view emerged. And I think it, 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 it makes a lot of sense. It's, it's not for me to, to sort of second guess that. I also think we shouldn't be closed on the possibilities that there may be different ways of doing things and that some of these technology innovations as i mentioned earlier programmability offers a lot of opportunities i think but also things like different ways of validating improving transactions could really improve the resilience and effectiveness of finance so so let's uh, let's not close the door to it i think um it, it would be premature to rule it out uh, even if i don't think uh, it's a here and now sort of uh, possibility 
to deploy in mainstream finance right now. Well, with that, we'll wrap up this session of FRT. Thank you very much, Tom, for being with us today and for sharing your views and the work of the Bank of England. As a reminder to those listening, the consultation responses are due on June 7th, and we look forward to having you tune in to future episodes of FRT, which you can always check them out on IAF's website, IAF.com.